Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are now recording our first episode. We did do one session uh, in our new recording studio at the college. They gave us an empty office and today um, Mike and I set it up with some new tables. I uh, have it somewhat arranged, some decorations on the wall. Um, Peter got here late so as to not help with any of that and then took my chair and began rearranging. Uh, we are joined here with a guest who has been on once or twice before. Once before, uh, and with the two oldest Hermanson girls, Aliva and Allie, who are trying out our new headsets. Uh, the 1517 Podcast Network um, was kind enough to supply us with four headsets to get us started for us to test out. And in case we are doing them wrong, we have them on the Hermanson girls because we will be least upset if we lose anything they have to say in this episode. But why don't you guys go ahead, test those out, and say hi. Why don't we start with the youngest first? Hi. Like, say your name and stuff. I'm Allie. It's been a while since you've been on. Why don't you tell people, you know, what grade you're in and what you like and Have some volume to your voice, too, yeah. I'm in fourth grade. What grade? I can't hear you. Fourth grade. Oh, what do you do in fourth grade? Stuff. Stuff. What's your favorite stuff to do? Literature. Literature? What are you reading right now? Paddle to the Sea. Paddle to the Sea? What did you just finish reading? You were telling me about King this. King Arthur. King Arthur. What What did you say? How did you think that people, that King Arthur should have knighted his knights? You and your classmates thought <laughs> that he was doing it wrong. Where you, where you put the sword on one side like you would usually. You do it all normally except when you like put it on so you put it on one side, they put it on the other shoulder. Then when it's on the other shoulder just slid off their head. Why and would you do that to your knights? Because then you wouldn't have any knights to rule because then it would be less work. <laughs> so it would be way more fun to just slit off a knight's head. So everyone's absolute them. monarchy, huh? Absolutely. Yep. And then uh Aliva, why don't you go ahead and refresh people's uh, memory of who you are in your, into this new headset we're testing out. My name is Oliva. I'm in seventh grade. I am currently reading Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. And, yeah. And what's your favorite thing you've read to this year in school? Uh, the... The Bible. <laughs> <laughs> the one... I forget what it's called. Uh, Crossfire Trail. Crossfire Trail? Yes. All right. I haven't read that one. And then, uh, Aliva, do you know where you're going to high school yet? No. Well, our, our guest might have a suggestion for a high school. Why don't, why don't we let our guest go ahead and introduce himself? Uh, sure. My name is Josh Seeger. I'm in my 14th year of teaching at Wisconsin Lutheran High School down the road. I teach theology. And uh, the primary course I teach, I teach all the sections of it, uh, is the life of Christ. Uh, and so going through his life and through the four Gospels. I also teach uh, our other New Testament course, which is Acts and the Pauline Epistles. I teach at the sophomore level. I had the pleasure of teaching Wade's daughter last year, and uh, Mike's daughter is currently stuck with me for the second consecutive semester. Uh, she didn't fail. She's just got me for the other course. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm enjoying that right so, now. So Wade's kids or Mike's kids? Who would you prefer? <laughs> well, she's only, he's only had, the he's only had so Maggie obvious. so far. That's so. true, yeah. So that's Maggie's the, Maggie's the best Nick of your will, kids Nick probably, will right? will be uh, <laughs> some shock probably <laughs> next year. 
Um, Josh, you, you mentioned that you teach the life of Christ, and our episode today will be on the four Gospels. We're going to be talking about the four evangelists and the four Gospel accounts. And so um, I didn't think girls can read, but Aliva says they can. So we're going to go ahead and test that and see. Aliva, why don't you go ahead and, uh, and try to read the disclaimer. If you struggle with it, just let me know and I can pick up wherever you leave off. I could read anything better than you could ever read anything. Well, that, that's funny. Maybe you can read the, uh, the letters after my name. Go ahead, Oliva. <laughs> this show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot, so approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost anything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live freely, friends, and don't let us get in the way. Believe I noticed uh, when you were reading that you were moving your lips. Are you, are you not able to read without moving your lips? I want to see you try reading without moving your lips. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> We're back with our scripture narrative. Peter, before you do that, are you going to defend your daughter? Am I going to offend her? No, defend your daughter against Wade's No, she's, she's, a, she's a strong uh, young lady. She, she can, can handle herself. it? Yeah. Okay. Right. No, that's, that's what I've been told. So, in fact, she has a shirt on that says girl power. So, I feel like that's, you know, that's enough. <laughs> so, we're back with our free-for-all today. We're going to, I'm sorry, with our scripture narrative today, we're going to... Um, Take a little section from the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the, wor- of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certain have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Yeah, and I think uh, that is included in the first part of a Mark study I've been doing at um, Peter and Mize Parish, uh, Nain Lutheran, and I think is helpful just for a couple of things that, that Luke notes there. Um, he is compiling a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. So these are things uh, he is using sources, and those sources are oral sources, but perhaps written sources as well, as people have been compiling things about the life of Christ. Um, he then notes he had consulted uh, beginning, uh, consulted those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So he is um, using the accounts of people who had witnessed Christ and were recognized as authorities by Christ himself. Um, having followed all things closely for some time past, we, we know that Luke was a companion um, of Paul, uh, and so from the other apostles, but especially from Paul, uh, he would have heard a lot of Christian preaching that then would have informed how he compiles his gospel, what accounts he chooses to include. Um, all the gospel writers were very intentional about what they chose to include and sometimes where they chose to put it in their gospel too. Um, each of them will, will sometimes try to highlight things 
um, by sandwiching accounts differently, perhaps, between other accounts. Um, and so even the synoptics, which we'll explain what that means later, we'll see different emphases. But then he says that to set forth an orderly account, and that name Theophilus there, we know that's then a Greek person. Uh, that could be a person whose name was Theophilus. This could be the lovers of God, right? Uh, it could be for a people, those among the Gentiles who love God. But we'll Theophilus meaning lovers of God or lover of God. Lover right? of God, yeah. yeah. And so this could be for a group or for an individual, um, but especially for a Gentile audience. And all of the evangelists had their own primary audience at the time in mind. And so we see that with Luke's gospel. And so as we get into the main topic after our free-for-all, we'll kind of talk about the different emphases of the different gospels, who the authors were, um, and perhaps who they were most influenced by. But I guess I'll see if any of you have anything more on that. Otherwise, we can save it for the main topic. One thing I just want to highlight, and we'll probably pick this up in the in the main topic maybe a little bit as well, but just so we don't miss it, the, the orderly account. When I read this, it always strikes me that he wants an orderly account, right? Let's put this down so just just so it makes sense. This is important. I know you understand you know all these things, but let's let's make it, you know, orderly, structured. This is in a in a sense he's saying for posterity's sake. I know you un- already understand that's how I understand what he's saying yeah. to Theophilus, whether that's an individual or a group. Um, he's saying, I know you already know this, um, and when we get to the Gospels, we'll talk a little bit about, like you said, the, the intended audiences or the perceived audiences as we are, as we can understand as readers. And in many ways, too, this order then will really shape the church here as well, um, especially with Luke's Gospel, with the Christmas account and that. Um, but we'll have uh, Transfiguration coming up. Uh, in many ways, the Gospels will, will really help shape uh, the liturgical can- calendar for the Christian church as well. Yeah, I think that's important to understand when we talk about how we got the Bible. We say, why didn't they just write it down right away? I got mine on Amazon, Amazon. from Concordia Publishing House. They're, uh, yeah. Um, we I, wonder why I they I didn't, didn't buy it right from just, CPH because they charge like the same price for shipping for every single thing they sell. So I could probably have like, you know, some foreign, like, rare animal shipped to me for the same price as a Bible from CPH. <laughs> See, I got mine. I have the same one as you. I got it right when it came out. There was a shipping deal, and they even printed my name on the cover, real nice and fancy and everything like that. You could have gotten one with uh, with Seeger's name on it, Wade. That's what, I may order one now with his name on it. <laughs> it's what everyone's doing these days. <laughs> I don't know why I've been with you all afternoon, and all of a sudden you turned feisty. I don't know. Is it because of us here? It, that probably okay. contributes to it. So, but I'm it's amazing, important okay. when we try to ask questions of how we get this content, and you wonder why didn't they write it down? And, and the gap between the events of of Jesus' life to when we actually have an autograph, the actual first writing of the Gospels, and the answer to that is it's an oral society. Uh, part of the answer too is that this is how information was transmitted back then, but it's also like they thought Jesus was coming back very quickly, right? And so I think for Luke, especially one who's coming outside of the Jewish context to say, to be, to have the pull to say, we need to write this down in an orderly way. And and to say, I've heard all these stories about Mary and the nativity, and Mark doesn't mention it, Matthew sort of mentions it, but it's he's highlighting the, um, the enunciations. And so he fills in, a little bit some of the gaps maybe now we, we can argue about when matthew luke mark luke and all that comes you can 
source theory will get there, Wade. Yeah. Um, I just want to note that the new setup in here, Peter and Josh, would you agree, kind of all being able to face each other around the, the, the two tables we've combined to make one big table, um, wonderful tables, I would say they seem to be, by the way. But Very really, sturdy, yeah. Yeah, they've really freed Mike up for um, next-level hand gestures. He, <laughs> he was doing like a claw thing at us, and then he was just beckoning us, but he's got his left left hand on the table, and I, I would say, I wish our listeners could see, it's really bringing things alive. Peter, do you, ever, do you ever meet people who they point out the flaws of other people that ironically their deepest flaws. I'm not saying you know, it's, like a, it's like a, it's like a <laughs> self-hate, something uh, trust like me, that. It's not hand like, gestures. There is only one person who does more awkward hand gestures than me, <laughs> and his name is Wade Johnston. We'll, we'll be back with the free-for-all. Welcome back for our free-for-all. When this uh, finally gets produced, um, it'll be... I would, I would like to note that Mike's arms are now crossed. He's feeling um, apparently self-conscious mm-hmm. about the hand gestures, and he kind of has... Um, what was the Saturday Night Live lady who used to... She had the skit where oh, she put like, very nervous. Oh, Mary then, Catherine Gallagher. Yeah, kind of. That's what Mike had going That's there. my wife's favorite character. All right. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this whole thing with my hands held out without moving. All right. So by the time this drops, it will be in the middle of spring training or the beginning of spring training. So for our free-for-all, we're going to do our much-anticipated Let the Bird Fly baseball preview. Now, with that said, we are recording uh, in February, and so there's a couple things that probably will have happened by the time certainly the baseball season starts, and that's the signing of Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. So we're going to be guessing a little bit here about with our preview because some Two very important players have not yet been been signed. So um, I'm going to go around the room, and uh, we'll start with you, Peter, and say, give me, give me a couple things that you're looking forward to the baseball season and where your favorite team's going to end up. All right, so I don't pay terribly close attention to the whole of MLB, but um, the Brewers are my favorite team. They're a team that I follow, um, even in the offseason a little bit. And uh, I think this was the year that I had targeted, I'd pegged for them to really kind of this was the all-in year, and last year was a surprise, a pleasant surprise. But I think they're still set up for this year. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it's going to be a tough division, but I'm going to say they're going to uh, edge out the uh, the Cardinals and the Cubs. How many wins? Take the division. Uh, I'll th- let me think about that. I'll come back to it in a second. But here's the here's the key. If it's going to it's going to hinge a lot, I think on uh, on their their starting pitching. And I loved what they did in the at the end of the year, the second half of the year with the bullpen pitching. I hope that they go back to that. But early in the season, I think they have to start off with a more traditional kind of conventional approach. And so Jimmy Nelson, he's if he's back, I think this team is going to be uh, is going to be is going to be a tough uh, tough to beat. I do like rethinking the bullpen, not in the way the Brewers do it did it, but like put your best guy in the seventh or sixth inning where it's the best hitters were so I do like that but putting your relievers at the front end is is it's classless I mean it's like <laughs> you know like we don't we know we don't have the talent and we can't buy the talent and I get and we can't and we can't uh, um, 
bring the talent up from our our minor leagues. They're kind of like plastic fold away tables instead of the mahogany desk that. Wait, the no, no, no. Anyway, Cardinals. wait, w- w- wait. Okay. Sorry, the Cardinals <laughs> calling someone classless? That, yeah. that doesn't ever happen. Well, they, do, <laughs> they do stop the riots for baseball season. Hey, right? Mike, my, my wife sent, sent me a text message last week um, with of a license plate here in Wisconsin. It had a brewer's rim around it, and the license plate was a, it was a vanity plate. It said the letter H and then the number 8. And then after that, it had a space and then STL. It was she just she thought that was just a wonderful license plate, and she knew then when she why she couldn't get it. I will note too, uh, so far as Mike's uh, note about the tables, I I went uh, to Home Depot and out of love for Jesus and this podcast and uh, you know just people in general, really humanity. I was feeling somewhat overwhelmed, kind of like a tear in my eyes. I thought about all the people of the world. Um, and I got these tables, and if you look at them, Peter, uh, the creases in them forms a, a nice cross, um, which it really is, you know, the heart of letting the bird fly. And and Mike brought a tablecloth to try to cover up my tables as if they weren't good enough um, and only did not use it because it did not cover all of the tables themselves. Um, but I just want to say that when you guys see these tables, I want you to to see my love for you. Um, and if you guys want to cover that love, I suppose. Well, I already said I'm gonna. I'll burn the tablecloth. I'll set it on fire. But, um, but, but that's really what I want you to see when you see the tables is is my love for you and and for our listeners as well. Do you see the love, Allie? No. <laughs> I, I would just like to say I really appreciate that. Uh, it makes me feel welcome in this brand new Thank studio. Thank you. Thank you. I, I was wondering a little. You know, since it is the maiden voyage with this studio, do we get to break a bottle of champagne over the tables? Or I suppose it'd we're, have to be sparkling campus, gracers so if we're, here. If we're going exactly. to, yeah, it's going to have Also, to be. these resin tables would just fold if we hit them. <laughs> right, wait. Tell me, we're, we're, tell not, me. we're not Bills fans. We're yeah. not. <laughs> tell, me about, tell me about the Tigers. You know what I bet they would fold like, Peter? The, the cards at the end of last season. <laughs> um, I don't care about baseball because the Tigers are going to be terrible again. Oh, I didn't give you. So I'm going to say I'm going to say about 90 wins. I think it's going to be a really good year for him. Sorry, go ahead. For Where the, the Tigers, for the Brewers or yeah, the, the Tigers? Okay. I know I'm going to. Uh, Tigers are in a rebuilding process and um, seem to uh, really not be putting a whole lot of effort into that. So I'm going to say Tigers. Uh, I'll be optimistic and say 65 wins and. Uh, the little bit of whoever shows some promise, I am going to guess, will be traded uh, potentially <laughs> to the Brewers um, in the second half of the year. As far as the Brewers, I'm excited to watch the Brewers. Um, I like the 90 wins idea. I'm a little bit nervous. Sometimes teams have this kind of early breakout year, and then the next year can be a bit yeah. of a struggle. So I'm really hoping that's not what happens with the, with the Brewers, but you just – it's really hard in the MLB anymore to, to have everything that went into last year. I mean, everything had to go right for the Brewers to have the year they did, and it, for the most part it did. Um, I'm going to say, I mean, and the teams in that division are just going to be beating up on each other. Yep. Uh, I'm going to go 85 wins for the Brewers and think that that puts them near the top still. Um, I don't think there will be a runaway team. Uh, although I would love to see them get to 90 wins. And I, I will still have MLB Network, and I will be watching the Tigers. Um, but I, I will be shocked if they get over the 70-win mark. 
but they will have a DH, so that will be good. <laughs> Josh? Uh, yeah, I, I'm also a Brewers fan, born and raised here in Milwaukee. Uh, and the, the Brewers are a unique team in that you know they were in the American League and now they changed over to the National League about 20 years ago. So I grew up you know, knowing them in the AL with a designated hitter, and I've also now known them in the NL without the designated hitter. And this goes way back to the beginning of the podcast, but... Wade's the only one who's right on this one. I, I having oh. had them both in my life, I very much prefer the DH. I and might they're, have. They're talking about going universal DH now. There's been a fair amount of a speculation or like or they have every year of the play. last forty years. <laughs> they want to speed the game up and having eighty-seven pitchers pitch in a game uh, takes a while. Yeah. Uh, I might have a gift for Wade along those lines a little bit later. Um, this is one of those years that I, I wish the Brewers were back in the American League because nobody's really trying to win the AL Central. Uh, you know, even the Indians, they, they've got holes to fill, and they're yeah. the defending champs, and they're just kind of looking and saying, yeah, we don't really need to fill any of those holes because the Tigers are rebuilding, the Royals are rebuilding, the White Sox. Are the White Sox? Yeah, they're the White Sox, and I know they're they're supposedly in on Manny Machado, which would help them, but I don't think that instantly makes them uh, a division champion kind of team and the twins are kind of stuck in this middle ground here and so yeah that's a division that looks great and then you've got the nl central where everyone except the pirates uh is trying really hard to win uh you know st louis with uh, acquiring paul goldschmidt and the cubs still being the cubs and dangerous and even cincinnati now they've made some noise this winter uh where yeah i i, I have faith in the brewers but i look and say boy uh, as mentioned they're really going to be beating up on each other in the NL Central, uh, especially with the unbalanced schedule, you're going to play each team 17 or 18 times, and that's going to be tough. That, yeah. That's going to take a toll, and I think it was uh, maybe three or four years ago, I think there were three teams in the division that won you know, 94 games or more. I think the Cubs in St. Louis and Pittsburgh all made it to the postseason, and two of those teams, you know, your reward for winning that many games is <laughs> a one-game roll of the dice, basically. Yeah. Beat up on each other. Yep. Yeah, uh, and so... I guess I envision that happening again this year uh, or happening this year with the Brewers. And I'd like to think they'll be right there in the mix of that. I, I don't think Cincinnati's quite good enough to, to be there when it's all said and done. Uh, and, yeah, I just hope hope you, Darvish, still doesn't figure it out in Chicago with the Cubs. And, you know, hope Paul Goldschmidt left all his power in Arizona. Very good hitter's part. So maybe coming to the outdoors of Bush Stadium will tamp that down a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, somewhere around 90 wins, give or take a few, seems about right. Um, they won 95 last year, and so I, not that I think they'll be appreciably worse, but just I think they're going to have a little bit tougher I think it's the competition. Yeah, and like Wade was saying, I think that, you know, 85-plus wins is maybe enough to take the division. It's going to be close. You're going to have, like, I mean, there's going to I think it's going to be a, a really tight race right at the end, which is a lot of fun. It makes the end of the season a lot of fun, so... Um, I think if you can get to 90 wins, though, you got the, and then you the, get that the division. And the Tigers last year, I will just know it helped the Brewers make that final oh, yeah. push. The, so, that um, is exactly I was, where I was going to go next. I was at game 162, actually, when they were I playing them. 161, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, we did appreciate that, the Tigers' ability to take the lead, but then give it right back to the Brewers yep. and, and let them keep it. Yeah. All right, Mike, let's hear about the Cardinals. Well, All right, that's great. So let's move on to the <laughs> sad. It's a sad, it's been sad. Um, I haven't. Had a World Series championship and it's almost eight years now. Um, <laughs> just I wonder if we have some violin music we could put over this. Kind of depressing to talk about it, but uh, 
No, I think uh, I think you're all right. About 90 wins for the Brewers, Cubs, and Cardinals. It's going to going to be a little ugly, I think, for all three. I don't think neither uh, none of them are very you know like an elite team. I don't think there's holes in all of them. And uh, but I think they're the three best teams in the National League. Maybe the Dodgers. You know, if they have the talent, but they if anybody folds in the in the playoffs, it's it's uh, the Dodgers. Um, Everything is Houston, Boston, and New York, unfortunately, in the American League. And I think that the gap between those three and everybody else is just going to be – you have 300-win teams in the AL and none in the NL, I think. So, so rinse, uh, but and, I could rinse see, and repeat from last yeah, season. Yeah, right? I think you could have I, – I do think, though, that the Cubs could be better. The Brewers are going to have a little, a little more maturity having gone through the playoffs. And the Cardinals obviously are better. They're not going to have – if, unless they have another string uh, series of injuries like they did last year with Goldschmidt, that's a huge pickup. And I think one of the NL Central teams uh, finally gets over the hump with the Dodgers, and then they get swept by the American League team, whoever it is. <laughs> as as we uh, close out the free for all, too, I just I did want to note, and we forgot to mention at the beginning, Peter. Um, first, we are a part of the fifteen seventeen podcasting network, so we encourage you to support that. Check it out. Uh, 1517.org, 1517.org slash podcasts. Yeah, and they just lost a podcast. Uh, Dan and Jeff, our friends over at Virtue in the Wasteland, just had their last podcast come out this week. So if you haven't been listening to Virtue, maybe go listen to these last two episodes as they will have new projects coming up, but they, after six years, have called it quits uh, with Virtue in the Wasteland. So we want to wish them all the best. I know that I've enjoyed some, their podcast, and they both have some big endeavors. So yep. check those out too. If you uh, if you're fans of theirs, make sure to see what they're doing next. Yeah, so please do check that out. And then I, I wanted to thank the listeners. We are up to 109 ratings and reviews mm. on iTunes. So someone can get us to 110, then you can be that listener who does that. But I do want to thank all of you for it, and just to acknowledge it, I thought I would read one review that I I thought was. Um, one of the, the more perceptive uh, reviews that we've had on iTunes, and this is um, from February 1st from another circuit rider, uh, clearly a person of good taste, gave us five stars. Um, but he, he or she, uh, I'm guessing he, said this is a great group. The live, uh, the live freely theme is so necessary for believers to, reminded, to be reminded as we all have ourselves to get in the way that the spirit overcomes. I especially appreciate how easily distracted Wade can be. I can relate to that kind of brain. Keep up the good work, gents. So uh, thank you to another circuit writer. Um, and uh, I guess other listeners, feel free to write similar reviews if you would like or to give us a rating. Um, but then as always, too, if you can subscribe, we've, we've seen a, a boost in subscribers recently. And that just really helps us to kind of track um, where we're at with listeners and to kind of build the conversation. So we appreciate and encourage you, um, if you haven't yet, to also consider subscribing. Peter, am I missing anything with all of that? I don't think so. Oh, Mike, you should take this opportunity. This is kind of like our second introduction. Tell us about your um, summer apologetics. Oh, so yes. We got that. Uh, make Carrie, the link in there. Kerry Keene and I, physics uh, guy here at uh, Wisconsin Lutheran College. He and I are going to be starting this summer, uh, June 11th through 14th, whatever the Monday through Friday is, in the mornings. And then we'll have one afternoon session. We're going to have uh, a one-credit course on apologetics. So introducing the apologetic task. Um, I think it would be perfect for interested laity, for high school teachers, for pastors, campus pastors, really anybody that wants to dig in a little bit deeper. It won't be too hard, but we'll, we'll challenge you um, about uh, 
all the different kind of uh, avenues of apologetics from philosophical to historical to scientific. We'll, we'll touch on a variety of things. It's only like $385 or something like that. It's for one credit. It's not bad. And I think it'll be an enjoyable week here in Milwaukee um, in June. And so if you're interested, you can go to wlc.edu slash apologetics or feel free just to email me. Uh, michael.berg at wlc.edu. And then just finally, we uh, would like to thank, we've had a group of pastors who have now been helping us to contribute devotions um, so that we can keep the daily devotions coming. Peter, you said we're over at or about or over 200 email subscribers. Yep, something like something about, something a little over 200, I think. So we're, with people getting those devotions in their email inbox, if you would like to get those, you can subscribe to them on the website. We do also, um, they're posted on the website. We share them on Facebook and on Twitter as well. If you're not following us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, uh, you can do so there. But uh, we'd like to thank the pastors who have been taking time out of their busy schedules to write those. We try to keep them churchier appropriate and really um, centered in the daily lectionary. So we we thank them and we hope people are enjoying them and hope... hope, uh, they'll continue to get shares. Uh, with that being said, unless oh, Josh I, I has I would just say I'll throw in a thank you uh, as someone who reads those. Uh, I've been greatly appreciating them, uh, both the pastors and then the additional work from Wade and Mike, uh, and even some of those. Uh, I sent my students this past week to 1517 to read one of Wade's articles, and I'm going to send them to Let the Bird Fly coming up here to read some of those because I think they're helpful, and as they are tied in with the church here, they're tied in with my courses as well. And uh, So thank you to all who have helped to write. Uh, I have appreciated it. Yeah, and just so everyone is aware, too, I have been writing mics, um, but I just don't want it to <laughs> seem like I have been doing all the work. And so, uh, Mike, I appreciate you letting me put your name on, on my work. Today is going to be the Gospel of Jesus Christ, um, specifically the four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, we have we have a guest here, uh, as we've already uh, heard from him, Josh Seeger, who teaches these courses to uh, high schoolers, but also right now is teaching at one of our local churches uh, a Sunday morning Bible class, and so he's in the midst of it just like uh, Wade had already mentioned he's been teaching a Bible class at, at Nain Lutheran, specifically on Mark. But Josh, why don't you tell us about uh, your class there, and then I'll start the discussion. Uh, sure. Um, it's a four-week course, uh, and so obviously that lends itself pretty well one week on each of the four gospel accounts. Uh, it means that it's maybe more of a, an overview. Uh, I think isagogics uh, is the term there for that. Uh, in looking kind of broadly at the main focus and emphasis of each, uh, getting in a little bit to the background of the writer, because a lot of times in looking at the writer gives us a window into their kind of angle on Jesus and God's grace to them is portrayed in, in those accounts. 
and then picking out a few accounts from each of the Gospels that I think especially highlight that writer and his particular emphases and his particular focus. And so uh, we started with Mark um, back on Super Bowl Sunday, uh, February 3rd. I did Matthew the next week, uh, Luke this week, and uh, we'll... I'll tip my hand. We'll save the best for last, and uh, we'll go with John uh, next week to close things out. So I'm confused. You said that the different you'll get to get a sense of the different writers, but I thought the Holy Spirit was the writer <laughs> of the Gospels. So what's what's going on there? Uh, and it's fitting, I guess. You know, we had uh, Luke's sort of introduction as the scripture narrative today, and I, I covered Luke today, uh, and so we discussed that uh, and the idea that you know, yes, we believe. Every part of the Bible is inspired. It is God's word, not just contains Except God's James, word. Except James, right? Or... Well, he'd have to ask Luther <laughs> on that one. Did, he was going to throw that in his stove, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and that we believe that about the word. And yet, you know, the Bible is very clear about the fact that it is inspired. It has much less to say about how that happened. And that sometimes, you know, we have this picture that, you know, it, it's Luke. And Luke's just sort of sitting in a dark room and, and all of a sudden, I feel the impulse to write and I'm going to start writing and I'm writing about things that I never witnessed myself and uh, that, you know, anything's possible, I suppose, with the Holy Spirit, but that he's not limited to that. Uh, And I think the phrase was, inspiration doesn't rule out human effort. Sure. Well, and I think, I mean, in our scripture narrative we talked about, we kind of, I kind of highlighted the orderly account, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it doesn't seem like someone that's, you know, being carried away by the spirit and not in control of their faculties. In fact, he's saying, let me give you an orderly account, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there seems to be something extremely, you know, purposeful and human about it. A- absolutely. And, and that comes through. E- each of those four men, they have their own particular thing that they like to emphasize about Jesus. And, you know, again, he, he takes who they are, takes what they see, and you know, he, he's still the one who's guiding that process and directing that process uh, and, and working through those men rather than just, I guess, sort of beaming stuff into their heads or things like that. We get to see their personalities come out uh, as well. Good. Yeah, so Wade, there's, um, you know, we, that, I think that's a good start. But then we've got this, this issue where we've got um, four different gospel accounts that are, that are canonized, and there's many other gospel accounts that are not. Um, where do these all come from? What's, the, what's some of the theories behind uh, where they're where they're sourced. Sure, and I think, you know, Josh got an important point that we don't believe, um, like is believed, for instance, in, in Islam with Muhammad just kind of having this direct revelation and then he dictates this to people. Um, and that kind of, you see that in the kind of sing-song character. I don't mean that as a knack, but more poetic character of the Quran than in many books of the Bible. We, we believe that they worked with the materials that they had available to them. And... Uh, and in fact, I would say that adds strength to the gospel accounts that they are using um, historical narrative that has been passed down to them in oral sources or in written sources. And when it comes to source theory, on its theory, because we we don't know, we don't have everything that they had and that they used, um, there's various things that we can talk about. One would be two-source theory. Um, it used to be kind of Mark's gospel was put on the back shelf or it was assumed that Matthew and Luke were written first and then for some reason Mark just abridged a bunch of stuff, which never really, I don't see how that made much sense. Um, but most now today believe that Mark's gospel was written first, which to me makes a whole lot more sense because it is shorter. It would make sense that Matthew and Luke would then build on that. 
if we're thinking of a two-source theory, we would think of Mark being the first source, and then a source that sometimes is called Q. And Q could be, um, you know, an early gospel that someone else had worked on, um, a collection of sayings of Jesus, who knows. Um, but the idea that there were potentially written accounts that were written earlier, and it would make sense because Luke says he's using right what's out there. Um, people may be writing down apostolic sermons, uh, things of this sort. And so two-source theory would say that Mark and Q then influenced Luke and Matthew, which in turn um, perhaps uh, influenced each other. Four-source theory is going to say, well, Luke had a source that he especially used, um, and then he used Mark as well as Q. And Q is just, I'm guessing Q comes from the German for quella, for source, although I don't think we really know for sure. Um, but that's the best guess. I mean, Q is just a generic term for there was some written source he had. And then perhaps Matthew had a written source that he used, um, maybe even something he had been working on as he's building up Matthew. Uh, and then these sources are used to form uh, Luke and Matthew. I mean, they're used by Matthew and Luke, that is. So let me just recap. So with two-source theory, they're saying that both Ma- both Luke and Matthew are influenced by Mark and Q. And in four-source, they're saying that there was a there was a, a third source that influenced Mark that did not influence Matthew, and there was a third source that influenced Matthew that did not influence Luke. Is that correct? Um, there'd be a source that influences Luke that didn't necessarily influence Matthew or Mark, and a source that influenced Matthew that didn't necessarily influence Mark okay. or Luke, right? Uh, and then Q would still be in the mix. And then the an, a third well-known one would be the Augustinian hypothesis. Augustine kind of hypothesizes that Matthew is the first gospel. Mark then uses Matthew, and then Luke uses Matthew and Mark. None of these are, um, you don't have to hold to any of these. None of these are authoritative theories, but they are theories to explain things. And I guess, um, you know, as we talked about in Mark, I, I like, a or in the Mark class at Nain, I like an early date for Mark. Um, probably early 50s, but 50 to 60 is usually where it's put. So we're talking, you know, a decade or so after Christ's death and resurrection. A lot of people think, well, 33 A.D., but the dating on A.D. probably wasn't clean and probably more like 37 or so. Maybe we think of Jesus' uh, ascension taking place. So these are written very early on. Um, And the idea being that Mark's gospel, written in Rome, where Peter would have been being heavily influenced by Peter himself, which I think makes a whole lot of sense as you read Mark. Um, Mark's gospel maybe even being arranged uh, according to sermonic themes, that homiletical themes that, that Peter had. But no matter what approach we take, this is just to say, just a brief introdu- introduction of these men uh, were using the best sources available, oral sources, um, you know, Mark using Peter, but then things written down too. I mean, we would have to be naive to think that no one wrote down anything about Jesus Um, you know, for 10 or 15 years after his ascension um, so that they are compiling the best record that they can find of this. And this is what really, I think, Mike, you can correct me if I'm wrong, gives a lot of strength to the apologetic task that we have eyewitness testimony that they are collecting the best data um, and things that could have been verified. What we have to remember is as these Gospels would have been spread, um, there's people who were alive and had lived and worked with Christ who could have easily called into question the content of these Gospels. Um, these Gospels say, so when Jesus rose, he appeared to these people, you know, some of them still alive, or, uh, you know, so-and-so's son who is listed as witness in the resurrection, you could probably still go talk to in Jerusalem. Uh, so they're making claims that were verifiable in their day. Now, we can't go back in time and interview those same people now, 
Um, they really should have taken video. I've often wondered why they didn't just do video interviews. Yeah, they just pull out their cell phone, right? Yeah. Just, I mean, do it on the spot. Yeah, but... Or yeah. on the or, street or interviews. Or at least right? understand our sensibilities 2,000 years right. later. You know, I, they didn't think to think about the way we learn and think about sources at all, it seemed like. Yeah. And Keep I've it short, <laughs> something, uh, something that I can tweet out, right? right. Or yeah. fit in like, an Instagram video. Like a meme of Jesus with his, you know, <laughs> resurrected hands out with the with the uh, nail marks saying, I'm back, right? Yeah. I mean, but come on. That's something really important for us to understand that we say, well, when I look at data, I want it this way in this form. And that's that's not fair to people 2,000 years ago. Right. And, it, it, you know, we, we joke about Genesis too. Genesis was not written. Genesis one and two was not written as a, you know, um, uh, an essay against evolution. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, uh, so we need to be careful there. And also we get frustrated with, with the Bible sometimes, but, um, we can with, with why doesn't just say this or not? Well, maybe, maybe it's more of an us problem. But, you know, do you have anything else yeah, on the and sources? Just, Go ahead. But part of the reason for mentioning that with the source theory is to get at that something that Josh was bringing out, too, is that each of the evangelists, so an evangelist, capital E, is a gospel writer. The, the New Testament also talks about evangelists, small e, right? These are people who are preachers. But for evangelists, um, and oftentimes if you go to older churches, the pulpit might even have the symbols of the four evangelists on it, or it might, they might be somewhere in, in the church. Um, they consciously chose what to include, what to select from this uh, for their audience and for us. And that's really what makes the gospel such a fun read, to read them individually as we get a glimpse of uh, what they thought um, they really wanted to emphasize about Christ for us. So maybe if we, to leave source theory a little bit behind for now, um, do we want to uh, briefly hit on uh, what are the synoptic gospels and then we can talk each of them I don't know any of you three gentlemen. If you well, Aliva first. What are the Synoptic Gospels, Aliva? And Allie. We, that was a shrug of the shoulders. I don't know if that came through on the audio. Probably heard that. Um, maybe Josh, if you don't mind, maybe taking it. What What do we mean when we say the Synoptic Gospels? Uh, sure. So um, you know, I guess broadly, we're talking about the first three as they're listed in the New Testament: Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, sin, uh, think S-Y-N, almost like sync, right? The same, and then optic having to do with seeing. These are the Gospels that see together in that they present the life of Jesus largely from the same, I guess, order and perspective. They're going to talk about a lot of the same events, mostly in the same order, although with Matthew, maybe not necessarily. But you're going to get uh, very similar looks at the life of Jesus as opposed to John, uh, who's going to kind of go back later and fill in the gaps and present stuff that they don't present. So where do the Gospels, Wade, you probably know this, where do the Gospels kind of fall? Like, where, what's, our, what's our best guess that when they were written and being circulated? I mean, I, I, I like an early date for most of them. I think, it, you know, if you're thinking um, the 50s and then the early 60s, I think the synoptics are largely going to fall in there. And then probably 70s for John, is that sounding right? I think we put it around 70 or so. Um, and, uh, and so the synoptics the, being the earliest three. And keep in mind, once again, Matthew may have come first for all we know. So I think that the 50s and early 60s make the most sense. Maybe with that, why don't we start with Matthew, um, kind of Matthew's intended audience or what we learn about Matthew, what he chooses to focus on, and I'll let any of you three gentlemen uh, jump in on that. Uh, yeah, Matthew, uh, 
that that was Ben's gospel, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. by and, default. Yeah. yeah, he's unfortunately not here. But uh, it, Matthew, he just start talking about bees, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matthew, more than any of the other four, uh, highlights Old Testament prophecy and then fulfillment on the part of Jesus. Matthew seems to assume a familiarity in general with Palestine, with Jewish customs and way of life, uh, all of which point very strongly to Matthew writing to a Jewish audience uh, in and around Palestine. Uh, And I think the best to look at to see how, even though I know we've highlighted on the podcast before, sometimes it's really hard to see, is Jesus really there in the Old Testament? Uh, and Matthew shows us, well, yeah, a- absolutely. Um, you know, this is the prophecy, here's the fulfillment, and that word fulfilled over and over again. Uh, and we talked about uh, when we covered this in Bible class, you know, Matthew is the tax collector that's called right out of the tax booth itself to come and to follow Jesus. And so... And- Mark's gospel, you might see that as Levi, or that Levi is called, but Levi would then be Matthew, Matthew having a Hebrew name and then a Greek name, like like Paul being Saul, his Hebrew name, and Paul, the, the Greek name. Uh, correct, and it's interesting, you know, Matthew, uh, I believe the meaning of the name is gift of God, uh, and it, you know, the Bible doesn't say whether did Matthew have that all along, uh, maybe like a Saul-Paul kind of thing. Was this sort of a, a Simon and Peter thing? Jesus gives him the new name, or did Matthew kind of take that himself as, you know, I, I was this despised tax collector, you know, hated by everyone, and Jesus saw me, Jesus found me, Jesus loved me. Uh, and so highlighting the grace uh, of Jesus and the grace of God to Matthew, but then also, you know, those gifts that Matthew had that would have made him, you know, uh, employable as a tax collector. We got to balance the books. We got to be nice and orderly. God takes those gifts and then puts them to use in a different way. Uh, you know, and I almost can picture the accountant, right? The books have to balance. And so you can almost see Matthew mentally doing that. Here's the prophecies. They got to balance. And oh, yeah, here's how Jesus balances that. Here's how all of that works. Uh, and putting together a, a very orderly uh, account himself. The uh when Trisha went back, and Trisha's my wife, by the way, um, when she went back and got her accounting degree, there was a, a little while where it looked like while we were still in Michigan that she was maybe going to get a gig with the IRS. And I was pretty stoked about being able to say I was married to a tax collector. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, that did not happen. But I think that's a, a great point you bring out. You know, he would have been someone who knew the importance of wait, keeping records. Wait, did, did she go back to get her accounting degree just to, like, really highlight the difference between the two of you? Or I think she what's... probably has never really thought I would last long in the ministry. And so there should be something <laughs> to, uh, to be able to support the family with. Yeah, I like, I'm glad you brought that up, Josh. I, when I think of Matthew, and I don't know if this is correct or not, just more of uh, something that I have thought through and maybe just noticed, um, that Matthew seems to have an intimacy with the teachings of Jesus, um, and he does seem to record things that, um, well, Luke and Matthew, of course, are going to record different things, but you know, Luke comes from a historian point of view that he is going to do some uh, some investigation. He's going to ask questions. He's going to make sure that for his largely Greek audience, uh, things are going to be explained, um, uh, th- that Matthew doesn't have to explain that kind of stuff. And I think there's some intimacy there. Um, you know, just think of the, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and he would have been there early on, you know, being called. Um, and, you know, it's in, 
it's in these very small towns. Um, it's not like Matthew didn't know Jesus was around, right? That Jesus didn't, uh, you know, uh, everybody would have known about Jesus and these and these sermons and the feeding of the 5,000, all this kind of stuff. And so Matthew gives that kind of, I'm a true disciple kind of person. And, and I've heard that often, that Matthew's kind of the disciple gospel. Yeah, so let's let's say something a little bit about that. So Matthew's um, he he knows Jesus personally, right? What about what about the other gospel writers? Josh, I don't know if you want to take the lead on that. Like, where what do we what do we know best of our knowledge about about where they're kind of coming from? Because I think that influences what Mike's getting at here. Yeah, uh, well, certainly uh, also St. John, too, uh, another one of the apostles, and I think it is striking. You know, those are the two that more than the others record teachings of Jesus and especially teachings of Jesus in larger chunks. You know, Matthew seems to organize what he's writing around uh, five big discourses, and there's some thought that that's sort of meant to mirror those five books of Moses to, to, to reach his Jewish audience in that way. Uh, and so you've got five bigger sections, and then obviously John you know, you get to the farewell discourse and the night before Jesus died, and you've got full chapters there of red that, you know, those show, again, an intimacy, somebody who's there, who's present with Jesus to hear all of those things. Um, you know, as for the other two, we, we talk about Mark, and, you know, I know Wade's probably more the expert on that, but, um, you know, Mark is associated with Peter, um, you know, very much by the early church, uh, and so if Mark wasn't an eyewitness, he's taking down a lot of the memoirs of someone who was. Um, you know, I personally think that there's the little anecdote at the end of Jesus arresting Gethsemane. You've got the young man who flees and leaves his garment behind. Uh, that seems awfully random to just kind of attach to that account. You can tell the story without putting that part in uh, unless there's a personal connection. And so I know there's some debate. I personally believe that was Mark. Uh, we know from Acts, his family seems to be well off in Jerusalem. They have servants. They have a big house where Christians the are gathering. church is meeting in his mother's house. Yeah, a- absolutely. And so, um, again, if not a direct disciple, because he wasn't one of the 12, someone who would have known who Jesus was, probably seen Jesus, heard Jesus, just maybe not quite from that intimacy. Uh, and then you have Luke, um, you know, seems to be of Gentile background and origin, Um but somebody who, uh, as mentioned, talked to people that did know Jesus personally, uh, you know, certainly talked to Paul, who got the special appearance, I guess, from Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, and so while perhaps not directly knowing Jesus, uh, was able to talk to people who did. Um, and I kind of like, not to jump straight to Luke, but Luke maybe is sort of an outsider. You know, Luke is probably not Jewish. He's not one of the apostles or kind of running in those circles with the apostles. And uh, I think Luke, more than the others, emphasizes Jesus' love to people who would be considered outsiders uh, in mm-hmm. the society of that day. Maybe in the lost parables, too. Yeah. I mean, the idea of that Jesus came for the lost, not just those that are already in the community. I'd jump in with Mark, too. I I, I like the idea, too, of, of Mark um, being that man who flees from Gethsemane. I, I kind of wanted to have... Um, my book on Mark, A Pastoring with Sinners, originally entitled The the Gospel of the Passion Streaker, um, but that got shot down. Um, but yeah, I think it is important for us to realize with Luke that Luke is really invested in the Gentiles, um, a Greek gospel, right? This is uh, this is for, this is, Matthew's taking things for granted, it's understood, 
Luke is going to explain them. And I think something to appreciate with Mark and Luke, too, both Mark and Luke were companions of Paul. Um, Mark kind of upsets Paul. He goes on a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, um, and he gets homesick, and Paul's kind of disgusted with that. And so then Mark wants to come along again, and Barnabas says we should give him a second shot, and, and Paul says, come on, we got work to do. We can't, you know, this we're not bringing him along again. And so Paul will take Silas and go one way, Barnabas the other, in, in good standing with each other, right? This is not disruptive to the church or a division. Um, but we know Mark proves himself, and Paul later commends Mark, sends greetings to Mark. Um, and so both Paul and Luke, too, obviously would be influenced by Pauline theology. And Pauline theology isn't different than biblical theology, but when we say Pauline theology, we mean especially an emphasis on the gospel for the Gentiles and um, of justification by grace through faith. Um, Paul's letter to the Romans really is the catechism of the New Testament, and obviously Mark would have been familiar um, with Paul's teaching for the Romans, um, but with Paul's message as it's represented in the Roman letter to the Romans especially too. Um, And so I think we see that come through in both Mark and Luke with the emphasis on the gospel for sinners, the gospel for outsiders, um, Jesus up in the north in Gentile regions a fair amount too. Uh, John will do this with the Samaritans, but uh, definitely a different emphasis um, than Matthew. Matthew is all about the forgiveness of sins too, but especially to maybe outsiders in the Jewish community, tax collectors and sinners, and we're all sinners, but that term just meant everybody knew this person was a sinner, right? Their sin was was known. Um, and so I, I think that's an important uh, distinction. I'll just, is it okay if I just briefly summarize Mark's gospel a little bit, yeah, then we quick, get to Luke? A quick yeah. aside about the, you're talking about the the Pauline approach or whatever, um, you know, and maybe we should do something that it gets more into canon, question of canon, but there's a there's debate out there about like, well, was the canon basically hijacked by Paul and his, uh, his lackeys? And so, I mean, if you run into that, you know, listeners out there, if you run into that, know that th- this is something that people talk about and this is, I mean, you should, you should just be aware of it. But so the question of, you know, Paul's influence on the New Testament is, uh, is very much a scholarly debate. Yeah, and that two of the gospel writers, well, three, I mean, John, of course, as well, but we're so intimately involved with Paul's shows. uh, What Paul was doing wasn't off the radar of the evangelists, and what the evangelists were doing wasn't off the radar of Paul. Um, But, uh, yeah, just kind of to hit some key points of Mark's gospel, um, Mark loves to use the historical present. I I usually like to explain it as uh, Mark tells his gospel like my grandpa used to tell fishing stories, you know, and then I says, and then he says, and then we goes, and... Um, and kind of this excited historical presence. He's he's caught up in it, which I think really lends credence to this being a, a sermonic gospel based on Peter's preaching. Um, short yet vivid descriptions, so Mark is not going to go in a lot of detail, and I think that is something he does also to allow us to kind of put ourselves into the scene, you know, to not describe it to where we, we almost uh, aren't left somewhat to imagine things. Um, he has a very topical ordering of events. This doesn't mean that he's acting against chronology, but he loves to sandwich stories. He loves to put related stories together. So we studied Mark 5 at Nain today, and he's got the Gerasene demoniac, but then Jairus comes, and in the middle of the Jairus account, Jesus on the way to heal the daughter, um, we have the woman who had had the flow of blood for 12 years that interrupts that. Mark loves to do those things um, and that shouldn't be surprising if you think about this as a person writing a story, telling telling the story. And um, this is these are um, narrative devices that we use in telling stories. These are captivating. This isn't we we sometimes 
come at the Gospels in particular, but the New Testament in general, and say, well, this should be just kind of, we're just worried about the facts. Give us the facts. But these are... These are stories that are being communicated, and they're um, and they're going to be communicated in a way that are you know compelling. And so, to have this kind of interrupting yourself and things, these different narrative devices, you should expect that. That's you know, and we should appreciate that. Um, and then I think just uh, a couple themes to keep in mind: the divinity of Christ again and again. Jesus is saying he's God without coming out and saying it. You know, they'll say, "Well, who can forgive sins but God?" And you just picture Jesus giving them a look like. <laughs> yeah, that's the point, you know. Um, and the rich young ruler will come, and Jesus says, "Who's good but God?" And you know, so again and again, he's emphasizing his divinity, the messianic secret. People keep saying he's the Messiah, and he says, "Okay, don't don't spread word around." Um, but then also, Christ for and confessed by sinners will be very big. And then finally, cross and discipleship. Right in the middle of Mark's gospel, we get that, "Take up your cross and follow me." So I think that gives some on Mark. I don't want to give short shrift to Luke and John. Um, Luke, I believe, is your gospel, Mike. Wasn't that your pick? Yeah. Why, start, why don't you give us why you like Luke? We, we sort of talked about it already, but I, I'm attracted to Luke because um, the gospel of Luke, um, because of the uh, the nativity narratives, um, but also uh, he writes as an historian. I like reading history and and then an historian. I, that's this History is the second. Is we don't have time for your nuts. This is the second time I thought you said an historian. Stop just to be it. clear, we uh, he says Jesus went here and then he went there. There's these um, kind of travel, travel kind of dialogue, kind of uh, keeping track of where Jesus is, and then uh, very much about the temple and so pulling into the Old Testament, but from a point of view from from maybe a Gentile's perspective, like you got to understand this, gen- this this temple thing a little bit. Um, and so that's why uh, I like Luke's gospel, and that's uh, my favorite. We got And Christmas, huh? That's pretty And good. Christmas. And we got uh, a few more minutes left, Peter. Why don't you give us why John's the best? <laughs> well, first of all, he comes last, and he's filling in holes. One of the things that's really striking about John is how he how he starts. His Greek is really simple, um, which is why I, you know, translated his gospel (laughs) in college. Um, But it was, uh, um, but the Greek is simple, but the thoughts are absolutely profound. He's a philosopher and he's pulling on these, these concepts. Light and darkness was one of them that early on just pulled me in. The concept of judgment, he just plays with these things. So he starts off with, in the beginning, right? He starts off with a, re, with a creation story. And so you're, he's pulling you in from, from eternity, right? And saying, let's go. And that's different from what the, uh, from what the other gospel accounts are doing. Most of them are starting from a, a kind of a fixed time, right? From the promise of 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 the Savior, he's gonna he's gonna go back farther, and he's gonna really draw the second person of the Trinity into eternity in a just in undeniable way. And so, it just becomes the this our, our doctrine of the Trinity in John just becomes really very very obvious and very clear. Um, the other thing is that he structures his gospel. He doesn't follow the the basic narrative or basic timeline of the synoptic gospels. He takes the first half of his gospel, roughly, is about the works of Jesus, right? His miracles and what he's doing. And there's a kind of a falling out right about chapter 6. Am I remembering that right? I think mm-hmm. it happens, yeah. where all of a sudden people start leaving him. The uh, the Pharisees in particular are, are kind of bad-mouthing him now, and things kind of fall apart as you fall through. And then you get to the second half of the gospel, and the deeds of Jesus, Jesus are gone. They're, that's not our concern anymore. Now we're talking about the words of Jesus, and that's where we get into, as Josh, you mentioned, like the high priestly prayer, where you have chapters where it's just read. So it's very different from the synoptic gospels you have um, from the beginning. Yeah, I, I really like how John just slows down 
uh, and really all of his accounts, you have you know almost this more modern. We're gonna you know really dive into one event and kind of give you lots of information about that uh, in a lot of things. You know, it's not just the feeding of the five thousand, but it's the entire bread of life discourse that comes after it. And you've got a whole chapter just on two days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then again, yeah, the second half of the book where you have you know several chapters really on you know what. 12 hours maybe mm-hmm. from the Passover meal until I suppose 24 hours until Jesus death uh, you know several chapters we're really going to slow down we're going to put you there and these are the things that I heard and that I saw and that were important uh, the other thing I appreciate about John and I guess it's just because we covered chapters one through three or at least portions of them in my course this past week is you know, how often John alludes to the Old Testament uh, without necessarily quoting it all the time like Matthew, uh, but assumes a familiarity. Um, You know, Jesus telling Nathaniel, you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And there's not a quote there, but, you know, if you know your Old Testament, you're, you're taken back to Jacob's ladder. And, oh, well, what does that tell me about Jesus, right? And Jesus is our our way to heaven. He's our link between heaven and earth. Uh, and just how often that happens uh, as he goes throughout. Yeah, and it's not just the Old Testament. He does things like he says, um, uh, I think it's in chapter 6 there, he says, and only the 12 remained. Mm-hmm. Um, and we read that as, you know, Christians. And we say, oh, yeah, the 12 apostles. And uh, he says, you know, I mean, but you look back through it and you're like, wait a second. John's never told us there were 12 apostles. He's never given us the names. In fact, you don't get the names of all 12 mm-hmm. of the apostles in there. And there are things where he just assumes a familiarity by his reader. So going back to our original kind of thesis that he comes later, um, that he's writing to an audience. And just to that, interject, I had said sometime after 70 that John's writing, I see my uh, study Bible here says 80, 90. The Lutheran study Bible says 80, 90. So this is definitely old man John who's had his, his whole life to think on these things too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he and he's writing to an audience that is you, you assume is very familiar with probably the three synoptic gospels, but certainly the gospel of right. Jesus, right? And in the 70 was in my mind because we, we know he's writing after the fall of Jerusalem yeah. by yeah. references he yep. makes. So so that's how we 70. know it is after that, the, the fall of Jerusalem in 70. But go ahead, Peter. And John is the, you know, we, we assume it's John. We actually don't know that it's John. The, um, the, uh, when I was in graduate school, um, professor that taught uh, the writings of, of John, he actually said the, the most appropriate answer for this would be the disciple who reclined on Jesus' on Jesus' chest, because that's, that's the one that we know. But um, it seems pretty, pretty uh, there's a lot of compelling evidence, and it's certainly where the church has, has stood historically, um, really, from the beginning, that John was the writer of this. But again, it goes back to this whole question of, like, there's all of these kind of questions with John that we just fill in. It does. It's not hard to read if you're a Christian, but if you are if you have someone who is not familiar with Christianity and you give them John, it's going to be really confusing. And not just because of the way it starts off, but because there's so many details that we just assume. First of all, John is extremely um, uh, sacramental, but you don't have the institution of baptism and you don't have the institution of the Lord's Supper, the words of the Lord's Supper. There. And yet when you read them, you just... You almost feel like, well, I just we just did that, right? Jesus' baptism was there, but it wasn't. With the, the words of institution were there. We were at, we were, we were on. It was Monday, Thursday, and yet you go back. You're like, oh wait, it wasn't there again. Just a lot of fun to read as a as it, with a little bit, you know, 
clearer eye and, and slowing down and saying like, oh, what's he doing? He's kind of, in a way, playing with us as readers. And I did a Bible study a, a number of times that where I focused on, on this gospel and said, this is the reason you should read an entire book of the Bible and not just pericopes, right? Because when you go through it and you kind of are forced to just see what this author is saying, it really kind of brings it to life for you and you start seeing the personality. Well, and I think a, another thing with John with the later date, what, we're, what we already see in John 2 is the church's engagement with the broader thought of the of the time of the culture, um, and so in ethics the other day we were reading Epictetus, which is a Stoic author, and talking about the Stoics and the Stoics have this view of there's this thing that kind of pulls the universe together and fate comes from this thing and and that's called logos, right? Mm-hmm. And John begins his gospel with engagement with that concept. Within the beginning was the Logos was the word. And so I think we see a fun thing with that, too, of um, already the church is not uh, kind of receding from, there's no fortress mentality. It's not, um, you know, retreating from the philosophical thought of the day or, the you know, the deepest thought of the day, but rather John wades right into it and says, hey, this logos that you hear about in, you know, um, in Greek philosophical thought, this is Jesus, and he really does unpack that then throughout his gospel. Yeah, and if Heraclitus, who's the one who famously said you can't step step in the same river twice from Ephesus, if John is in and around Ephesus when he writes this, it's really hard to believe that he would not have heard or known or knew what he was doing when he word we use the word logos or logos or Absolutely. however you want to. No, we should we should spend some time. Maybe we can do after you're done with the uh, life of Luther wing in it series. Maybe we can do a, a short wing in it series with just one on each of the gospels because that would be a lot of fun to just kind of dig into them. But we should probably wrap things up here, Mike, because we're, uh, we're we're getting past our one hour. All right, you have something, Josh? Uh, I did bring a, a couple of gifts. I guess you know one for Wade and maybe one just in general. You know, Wade put out. Uh, and I, I don't have Facebook anymore, but I have Twitter and Wade put out, you know, oh, we need decoration ideas because the walls are so bare. And I see now they're not quite as bare. There's a, <laughs> there's some great stuff here. There, there are some a, bears on the wall. There are bears. There are bees. There are apes, the opposable thumbs, uh, a there time zone map. We've got Pastor Johnston. Uh, there are a few pictures of Wade, um, which I'm going to assume are Photoshop just a, a little bit. Uh, Canadian flag with the hashtag uh, evangelical. Um, there is a let's get physical, and I assume that's you know Olivia Newton John's album cover. And I Wade what told me he just found it on the internet. I really thought the guy in the middle had been photoshopped to look like Mike because it really does look like Mike, at least when I first looked at that. Uh, and a map of Albania so that it can be located now. But uh, my suggestion to Wade was, well, you know, because I have his back on the DH thing, is you should have a wall of all the, the famous really good DHs, and you can get David Ortiz and Frank Thomas and Edgar Martinez up there. And so uh, I brought I gotta along... I've got to give you props. I disagree with you on the DH, but that's a, that's a very good idea. I, I brought along uh, a picture of, you know, number one, my personal favorite player of all time, which is probably what colors that debate for me. Um, and number two, a very good DH, a, a Hall of Famer, and that's Paul Molitor. And nice. so uh, we've got Paul Molitor there. He's wearing the Brewers' classic pinstripes, getting a hit off of the Toronto Blue Jays, wearing their classic baby blue uniforms. That's probably Ernie Witt behind the plate. So I thought you were going to go with Rob nice. Deere that's striking out for the fifth time <laughs> in, in a game. Well, see, he played the outfield. We, we saved the DH for a really good hitter. 
Uh, and then I brought along, uh, I didn't know it was going to be the baseball preview, but I figured, you know, I do like the logos and the colors. So I figured we'll, we'll get logos to represent the different baseball teams, except I wanted to go both a little retro uh, and a little weird. So this is, uh, I've got the classic Detroit Tigers nice. kind of 1980s logo uh, with the Tiger who looks like he's just walked into a room and wishes he could walk back out and unsee whatever he saw. He's got <laughs> kind of a strange, his mouth is open, his eyes are kind of wide. Uh, so we've got that for Wade. Uh, we've got, uh, now I like the ball and glove logo, and I, I think I might actually have one of those too, but uh, the very first Milwaukee Brewers logo, nice. uh, Beer Barrel Man. Barrel is, Man, yeah. uh, there he, It's a, a beer barrel that they gave legs to in a baseball bat, and uh, his nose is the tap and everything else. So. He does look like a DH. <laughs> he does. There you go. Uh, and then, boy, uh, against all my better judgment, I printed out a St. Louis Cardinals logo. Oh. But I had to try to find, you know, the Cardinals think they're we so classy. We do have classy. a recycling bin over here next to, uh, <laughs> next to Peter. The Cards think they're so classy. So I found the unclassiest Cardinals logo I could find. This is uh, apparently uh, the great site <laughs> sportslogos.net. Uh, tells me it was used in the 1950s as an alternate. Uh, it's not the classy birds on the bat. Um, it's a cardinal who's pitching. He's got his back kind of turned, uh, like almost doing a, a Hideo Nomo twisting delivery. Uh, has red demonic looking eyes and a scowl on his face and everything else. Uh, but he's wearing a St. Louis cap, so you know it's him and you know it's the team. So uh, my contribution there. Well, thank uh, one you. I'll for have to put those up uh, after teaching tomorrow. We'll have to, to find a nice spot to put those all together. That's very thoughtful. I think this, these are the best gifts we've gotten from. Well, no, we got we got uh, got to test wine one time, so that was that's tough to beat. That's right. Well, and I'm just trying to this reciprocate. Is, these are good gifts. The, the last time I was here, I, I got an autographed picture of Mike. Uh, from Wade. Mike was kind enough to send along a, a sticker and a shirt with Abigail. Wade was kind enough to send a sticker of Mike with Maggie. So I, I, I've got all kinds of stuff from you guys. I, I feel I, it's... I don't know where Maggie got that. I, I still don't have a sticker. It's only fair uh, of me to reciprocate a little bit. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Mike, why don't you, uh, why don't you wrap us up here? We had a lot of fun here, uh, and the reason we had a lot of fun is because we are secure in where we're going for all eternity. Um, we can we can banter about about baseball and stuff like that, and and some of us can be wrong about certain things, and we don't kill each other. <laughs> um, the reason is because we are free, and we are free in Christ, and that all comes from the gospel that has been graciously given us to us from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John. And so, as you read the gospel, first understand that Jesus has saved you and that everything's going to be okay. And then after that, Josh, what should they do? Let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk. I'm just a jank. I set them up another round. I set them up another round. I set them up. Another round, one more round, get me down. Came home last night, all full of lush. My babe began to fuss, and I said, honey, honey, I don't care what the